Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. This evening's seminar is held on the homelands of the Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I would like to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, along with the elders of other communities who may be here tonight. Let me also give a very warm welcome to friends of the library, to members of the Grattan Institute and their supporters, and of course to tonight's speakers uh, from my side here, Francis Copililo, uh, Professor Linda Christensen, uh, Professor Peter Noonan, and Andrew Norton, who is going to be our host this evening. So we meet tonight for this um, uh, discussion, which is very, very pertinent, a subject that's in play, you might say, once again, and that is about post-school options, both vocational and uh, those to do with uh, higher education. Now, just recently, ahead of the August COAG meeting, Prime Minister Morrison proclaimed that TAFE is as good as uni. Vocational education, he said, is as good as university. But it's interesting, isn't it? With uh, enrolments in vocational courses continuing to decline, that confidence, I think we can say, is not necessarily shared by students. We are also hearing from many in the business community who say they want urgent action to revamp vocational education to attract more young people into the trades and head to head off what they see as current and future skill shortages. Now, at the same time, we have university leaders uh, who are calling for the reinstatement of demand-driven funding, which will let them enrol unlimited numbers of bachelor degree students. So we have to ask ourselves, are these goals intention? And what advice should we give to people, to young people, thinking about their post-school options, assuming, of course, they will listen to us. Now, to our panel. Uh, leading tonight's discussion is, is Andrew Norton. Now, Andrew uh, is known to many of us. He is the Higher Education Program Director at the Grattan Institute. He's the author or co-author of many articles. His uh, uh, pieces, I think, are always worth reading in, in the Australian, um, in fact, essential reading. His most recent report, though, is on the student choice between higher education and voc-ed. In 2013, he was the co-author of a Government Commission review of the higher education demand-driven funding system. And Andrew, um, I gather this is going to be one of your last events as um, a member of Grattan, but we, we don't need to say farewell just yet. Okay. <laughs> but Andrew, Andrew is joined um, uh, by uh, Francis Copililo, fr uh, Chief Executive of the Melbourne Polytechnic. Uh, Francis is just here next to me by Professor Linda Christensen, Vice-Chancellor of Swinburne University, and Professor Peter Noonan, Professor of Tertiary Education Policy at the Mitchell Institute at uh, Victoria University. So, Andrew, I'll hold, hand over to you now as host. For decades, we've worried about this balance between vocational and higher education, and this has become more acute over time, that as the, the number of students going into university increases, uh, the TAFE sector and the vocational sector has been concerned that it's not getting all the students that it needs. And so, as Maxine said, uh, our final Grattan report was really looking at this choice between vocational and higher education for, for the lower ATAR students, say between 50 and 70, uh, admittedly using the, the limited metrics of employability and earnings, obviously not the only things that people want to get out of education. 
And we came to some quite mixed findings. Uh, what we found was that for young men at least, uh, if they're willing to do construction, engineering, some business-related qualifications, they probably could earn more in a vocational edu- after vocational education than doing a bachelor degree. So for them, uh, the usual story about bachelor degree on average earning more than the vocational qualifications may not be true. Uh, for women, we found a different story, which is that when they do go into engineering or construction, which is quite rare, often they don't earn very much and they leave and they go to other occupations which are more flexible but pay less. But in the courses they often do do in university, like teaching and nursing, uh, they have good employment outcomes, good earnings across the ATAR range. So we did find that we thought that for many young women, uh, going to university, despite a low ATAR, probably is a pretty wise choice. But there are lots of complexities to this, and I think we can start unpacking them uh, with this panel we've got tonight. You know, the reason for the choice was that Linda uh, is VC of a university that's a dual sector, so has both a TAFE and a university. Uh, Peter is a veteran of these policy issues going back uh, many decades and trying to deal with the awkward relationship between vocational and higher education. And Francis is the CEO of Melbourne Polytechnic, which is a leading TAFE. And I'd like to start with you, Francis, which is that as the leader of a TAFE, do you feel like you are competing directly with higher education or is it a case you'll be dealing with different markets? Um, I think it'd be simple to, to give you a simple yes and a simple no, and I don't think that's the situation. I think um, I don't think we're competing with universities. I, I think um, that uh, as much education as our community can get, the better that is, uh, both for individuals and for society in general. I think, though, that our major competition has come from the uh, marketisation of the vet sector over the last number of years, um, and that's caused a fracture to our development, I would imagine. Um, I think that um, we, we're also a higher education provider and um, in that sense I also don't think we compete with universities because we don't get access to the same sorts of funding that universities do, although we're equally regulated in the same way. Um, so I, I think there's, a, there's room for a vocational provision um, and vocationally orientated degrees as well, you know, certificates through to degrees. Um, I think government policy and funding structures have impeded us more than competition from the different sectors. I think we need more flexibility in the sector, however. Um, we probably aren't as good both ways from a higher ed perspective and uh, takes in pathways and articulation in the way that we can so that we're presenting to students a seamless continuum of education and flexible entry and exit points into work and back again. Um, we see a number of students from universities come back in a kind of reverse articulation, if you like. Um, and, and, uh, and I think it's different also in different industries. Um, uh, and what they require in terms of qualifications on entry and then as you progress through that industry. Linda, could I ask you a similar question? You, know, you are a dual sector doing both vocational and higher education. Do you feel like they are competing with each other or do you ever 
you know, does your organisation ever tell someone applying for one to go to the other or anything like that? Um, we don't think of this as a, a competition. We think of it as, well, I think a dual sector is the new black. I think it's a wonderful opportunity because it means that students can come with a range of backgrounds and a range of preparations, and our job is to help them match and fit where they're most interested. It was most evident at our open day recently where we had uh, our, our teachers and our academics in vocational and higher education meeting with people alongside each other so that we can offer people a, a course either in a certificate but all the way through to a PhD. Um, and Do the students it, understand the difference at Swinburne? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, and and b we have the highest proportion of students who transfer from vocational to, to higher ed. And part of the reason why I think that works well is because it's seen as one university, one place. So students can come to Swinburne, they can begin, they can, if they have a lower ATAR or they may have experienced some educational disadvantage, they're not unintelligent, but they may have had some challenges during their childhood or in their uh, adolescent life, we can give them a pathway, we can find them a doorway, and then they can take the steps in. The other thing that we're able to do, which I really am enthusiastic about, is helping students who may uh, be doing a higher education qualification also pick up a vocational qualification and become more marketable. Uh, we have an example of one doing it right now who's doing her uh, degree in psychology, but she's also picking up a certificate for in mental health. And for her, that's a terrific opportunity. Gives her some very practical uh, contextual learning while she's doing that degree. So rather than think of it as uh, a pathway from one to the other in a more hierarchical way, we prefer to think of it as more of a matrix. Yeah. So in this report that we did, we did some work on schools, careers, education, and found that it was very patchy. Uh, some schools do quite well, others offer very little. Uh, and the recent Joyce review of vocational education policy found that there seemed to be significant confusion over even whether you needed to go to vocational or higher education for your given occupational goal. Do you believe this is a problem, that the schools just don't give sufficient advice? I think it is, it is difficult, and I think that... Um uh, there are efforts, particularly within Victoria, to try and, and create the story on a page so that career counsellors can be helped to know how to guide people and, and make that straightforward and simple. I think the other thing that is challenging is that uh, the, the work of the future is, uh, is changing and the skills that are needed and the capabilities are need, uh, needed are different. I think the days when people thought of vocational education as dangerous, dumb, um, yeah, and and uh, less important, I think, are changing. Uh, and so, therefore, I would challenge the views around a low ATAR means you ought to go into VET. If you're going to be working in some of these more uh, challenging skills-based vocational areas, you need a lot of mathematics. You need to understand critical thinking and problem solving. So I think it's our responsibility as educators to work with the schools and the secondary schools to help them understand the pathways, the careers of the future, help the parents understand the careers of the future so that they can map uh, in, a, in a less judgmental way uh, the pathways for their child that suits them best. I would also add that we're, we should only be thinking about high school leavers, Andrew. 30% of our students that are being educated in our pathway and vocational education division are over 30. 
And so uh, as we think about the careers of the future, the, uh, the roles that are going to be needed, uh, it will be important to keep those doors open and invite people back in for further education, for another bite of, of learning uh, that they can build in a, a way that, that stacks their, their learning and helps them to remain relevant uh, and, uh, and able to, to respond to the future of work. So how do we deal with careers advice for the older people? Because we've got a captive audience at school, but how does it work for, for people already in work? Well, we've already got a number of, I think, points of entry right now. We've had about 800 people that have come through for our vocational programs who are in the mature age categories that have been helped through uh, the skills and job centres that the Victorian government has supported. So I think there can be some easy doorways. Uh, and I think the other is to really, you know, it, it behooves us to get the message out about what those opportunities are. Work with employers and help employers know how to redirect people and help them to uh, to uh, find ways for people to retrain and find new skills and opportunities. I think, um, I think the, the view that um, learning was linear and progression was linear uh, in any industry has really been challenged. Um, and so we have, we've got to think much more flexibly as capabilities such as those that Linda was talking about become important at all levels of education. So whether it's in a Cert 3 or it's in a, a, a bachelor program or in a, in, in a diploma, you have to grapple with those capabilities as much as you might grapple with uh, more technical technical skills or knowledge uh, that you need to undertake. So those things are becoming much more integrated and they're integrated in the jobs as well. Uh, I think one of the challenges we do have also is parents. Um, they are key influences of young people and also the experiences we have even as um, young adults or adults in the workplace, we, we, um, we gain our knowledge from our experience and what the workplace of the future is showing us is that we haven't experienced what that is potentially going to be like. And so we need, um, we need flexibility in education, both in terms of technical capability and knowledge sets that enable people to transfer a lot more. And that's quite challenging to grapple within a career education system in Victoria which hasn't been well resourced um, uh, in, in the past. So, Peter, uh, you are doing a review of the Australian Qualifications Framework, and this is the the rules that set out what the different qualifications are, certificate one to four, basically vocational education, diploma and mix of higher ed and vocational education, bachelor above uh, higher ed. Do you think the AQF maps neatly onto to current work or future work? or Do we, do we need hybrid qualifications? Look, Linda was suggesting yes just a moment ago. Because um, we're just about to submit our report, I, you understand it. Be very careful. Yes, agree of caution. Um, look, no one will report anything yeah, from this meeting. Yeah, of course not. Um, look, I, th I think the short answer is probably no, because um, it tries to define at levels the attributes, the graduate attributes at, at a single level for a whole vast different range of qualifications. So one of the things we're looking at is how we can um, use it as a much more flexible instrument um, rather than one would prescribe that graduates at this level will, regardless of whether they're doing a, a bachelor in um, physiotherapy or a um, 
uh, an arts degree in ancient Greek, the, at the moment the graduate learning outcomes are defined in this ubiquitous sort of same way. So we're looking at um, how, the, how the AQF can better define and differentiate different qualification types, but also how it can be used far more flexibly then, rather than having all these levels kind of rigidly locked in in a lockstep way. Um, and it, look, hybrid qualifications in a sense can already be created. I mean, some universities, for example, I'm, I'm sure it happens at Swinburne, it does happen at VU, where you can have nested qualifications where people will get a bit qualification outcome while doing a degree. The problem is one of uh, overlapping and dual regulation. So I know there are cases where in order to create a um, hybrid qualification, you run the risk of being um, at variance with either the higher ed standards or the, uh, the RTA or training package standards. Um, and of course, funding rules can, can kick in as well. So for example, um, Linda and I were talking about the example um, that she mentioned, it just coincidentally happened that I, uh, I know a young woman who's in exactly the set up the uh, degree with a um, cert for in mental health. Um, and I asked her why she's doing it concurrently at the moment. And of course, it's because if she completes the degree, next year she'll be ineligible. So she couldn't do the certificate for end on because it would then be a high, you know, a high level qualification. And of course, the other disincentive is that, and if it's on the free TAFE course, this, that's fine. If it's not, she'll get a hex loan. She could get a hex loan for an additional higher ed qualification. She could be paying upfront fees for a, um, a VET or a TAFE qualification. So there's a whole range of regulatory and funding inconsistencies that don't work well from the point of view of flexible course design and flexible delivery. And one of the things that Mitchell Institute that we've been trying to do is to say that rather than saying the two sectors should, systems should merge, we should think about uh, uh, making sure there's a, a differentiated and uh, distinct set of offerings but are better connected and, and where there is, um, uh, there, are not, there aren't anomalies and disincentives in terms of the choices that students make. So that was a reference to you can't get public funding for a qualification higher than the one you've already done. That's right, yeah. yeah. Could I hear, does you have hybrid qualifications? Yeah. How do they work? Yeah, um, we do, uh, just as we described in this way, we can, because we have the benefit of of uh, the range of offerings, we can nest a vocational qualification in higher ed, and we can also create those pathways for people who complete a pathway or a vocational program into higher ed. So that helps. It's not easy because of the funding arrangements. So when you, you made your opening remarks, Andrew, you spoke about you know the students going into higher education and they're not going into VET, and the VET people would like more students. I think we should return to the why here. This is not about us trying to get more students. It's about the workforce we need of the future. And we're very concerned that we are seeing, if the policy settings stay as, as they are, that there will be a downturn in the next decade in the number of students completing both higher education and vocational qualifications and a real workforce shortage. Um, the reason more students came into higher education is they could get an income contingent loan. So if that's the doorway to go through, that's great. It was actually cheaper to come in and do a degree in nursing than it was to do a diploma. You would earn less and you would have to pay more upfront fees uh, for a diploma than a degree. So I think there are some real um, 
uh, anomalies to the way the, the funding structure has, has created this uh, disconnect. And that's the piece that needs to be smoothed out so that students can choose the right program for themselves and also have access to the right funding support. Because ultimately, we are going to find ourselves with um, a growing number of uh, young people uh, who will be wanting to go to university or some form of tertiary education. Uh, we will have a capped environment. We will not have the funding support to help them get through the doors. And we will have a disenfranchised group in the next generation. And that creates a lot of social risk. I'll, co I'll come back to the funding issues in a moment. Francis, do you have this issue as well of you know, trying to run hybrid courses and the funding system not supporting it? And you have to charge full fees for your higher education courses as well. Look, I think um, everything that Linda has said was reflected with us as well. Um, we There are a range of barriers, whether they be regulatory or funding basis, that makes that difficult. It makes staffing difficult across both, uh, both sectors as well, under different awards and those kinds of things become barriers. Um, we work very hard in our higher education provision to ensure that that's quite practically focused, so... Um, working on knowledge and theory, of course, but also ensuring that that is applied, which is a mark of what we attempt to do, as a number of universities do as well. Um, and then we would be providing almost skill sets that are above the degree um, if they can't be integrated within it. So what was the background in deciding to go into higher education? Well, um, the then Minister Lynn Kosky created... Um, the idea of the vocational degree where we would be able to develop degree programs in areas that were pathwaying from our VET provision and that were industry focused and so that's how it began about 15, maybe 15 years ago. Let's move on to the funding issues in more detail. So, Peter, the Mitchell Institute has done some work showing some significant declines in public funding over time for vocational education. Can you give us the background as to why this has happened and how big is it? Um, well, it's substantial. Um, and um, I, I do want to take a step back because I was on the Bradley Review, um, which recommended the introduction of demand-driven funding in higher ed. Um, but we made a very important um, uh, statement and a recommendation. In fact, there's a very clear statement that there was a risk if demand-driven funding was introduced in higher ed. We warned of the risk of the states withdrawing funding in debt um, and the um, uh, discrepancies and anomalies we've talked about. And um, um, unfortunately, at the time, the government only adopted the demand-driven funding for higher ed and completely neglected the arguments around the broader tertiary funding and then here we are 10 years later looking at the problem that, frankly, was anticipated, so, which is very disappointing because it's, we're now in a much more constrained fiscal environment. So certainly income contingent loans is part of it. Um, the, the per course um, subsidy rate um, where um, states basically slashed the subsidy rate for a whole range of courses, um, the disaster with vet fee help, where, again, some states shifted publicly funded courses, not so much in Victoria, but some states just shifted publicly funded diplomas and advanced diplomas completely into vet fee help, allowed providers to charge outrageous fees, in some kinds triple the cost of delivery, and then, of course, we had the, the catastrophic meltdown. 
And that then left a problem because the courses had been defunded. They weren't, they weren't eligible necessarily for the vocational student loans program, so they're now, well, in some cases, they had to be discontinued. Um, and the, um, uh, uh, now that the caps have come on and we've only got modest population-driven increasing in, increases in higher ed, we now have the perfect storm because we've got limited capacity for higher education to grow and on the Mitchell scenarios, significantly, significant anticipated ongoing declines in VET. And Linda's point is that in the next decade when we need substantial growth in participation, you can argue about whether our scenarios are optimistic or pessimistic, but nobody said that they're not going to go down. Yeah, we'll turn to that. So, Francis, you've been sort of in the eye of the storm here. So when this funding disappears, how does an organisation like yours react? Do you cut the courses? Do you increase fees? How do you deal with this difficult, chaotic environment? Uh, we've done all of those things, I think. Um, it's... Um we had diplomas go from, you know, $7 to $1.50. Um, an hour. An hour. An hour. For an hour? Yes, Otherwise sorry, it sounds very hour. cheap, yeah. <laughs> $1.50 an hour. And some of those were just simply unsustainable. We met some of the, the gap with uh, price increases. Um, layered over the top of that were the eligibility rules, uh, which further made it more difficult for people to actually come to TAFE. Um, so it's been a quite a complex, um, quite a complex system, um, and also one where there, it, it was really difficult with a completely unregulated, openly contested, contestable market for the the student to find the difference between a public provider and a high quality private provider, and others who you might say were were far less interested in the education more than they were interested in the public dollar that was available. So how do you create brand in vocational education? So that, like, in higher ed, we haven't really had these problems because there are strong brands in the universities and students have a reasonable idea of who does what. How do you fix that in vocational? Because I know you, your organisation changed its name. Was that sort of part of the, the rebranding exercise? or? Um, it wasn't driven so much by the changes in vocational education funding and those sorts of things. For us, it was driven by the fact that we had higher education programs and vocational programs, um, and, it, and it was a way of describing the many different things that we do without our higher education staff actually saying, well, no, actually, I do higher education in a TAFE college. Or, yeah. So Melbourne Polytechnic was a way of um, describing the total and the continuum of provision that we offered. Um, I think it was really interesting in, in, the, in the days of full-blown contestability, most of the TAFEs, if you look around, um, dropped the name TAFE. So we have Kangan Institute, we've got Chisholm Institute, um, we've got a whole range of institutes but not so many TAFEs. Of late, that's changed. I think TAFE as a public provider and the ability to use the word public provider has come back into the discourse. Uh, it certainly was not the case. So we struggled very much to differentiate ourselves from a, an open market place. Um, yeah. Look, are we now at a point that the private sector has been tarnished because 
even though it was a relatively small number involved in the vet fee help scandal. People don't know who's what. Is that is that but, shifted I mean, the, the market? It's interesting with the, you know the private public thing. I think private providers have been in the system for an extremely long period of time. I think what happened was that the policy settings and the funding arrangements brought in an influx of providers that really did not have a history. They created themselves in the in the policy and funding landscape. They actually were not education providers. So if you if you think about the creative arts, for instance, they, they've always been very good, um, quite focused private providers in that space and they've coexisted and, and enterprise-based um, vocational training providers. What the funding settings did is just open the floodgates, which made it incredibly difficult for anyone who was trying to deliver a quality provision to students uh, to continue to do that. Linda, what's your experience of this? Pretty personal, actually. It was tough. Uh, we had, um, you know, a, a real downturn with funding cuts in Victoria in 2012, and we had to find $40 million out of the business right away. Uh, so that led to redundancies, and, it, and we had to reshape our courses and really think about what it was we would offer. So we did that in alignment with our, our uh, university vision, which was to be a leading university of science, technology, and innovation. And we moved out of areas that did not align specifically with that. That could allow us to really create some clearer pathways between vocational and higher education. Uh, I think what was particularly concerning at that time was, was, the, was the opening up uh, to a range of providers without the right protections in place. And I remember saying to the minister of the day that if you want to control quality minister, control your providers. Don't chase it later. And ASQA was meant to be the regulator that was going to protect, but really ASQA had no teeth and it was quite difficult. And so students were captured by um, a lot of marketing by some providers who weren't in the education business on Monday, but they were on Wednesday. And they were offering, you know, free uh, laptops or iPads and come along. And so students, uh, you know, were drawn into this because they wouldn't necessarily have had the background to, to screen for reputation in the way that you described with a university name. And then uh, they squandered their entitlements when this didn't work out. So to me, it was really quite heartbreaking and really uh, not ethical in many instances. So I think that we've had some correction now. We are seeing more of the vocational students coming back to the university. And I think it's because we've been here for over 110 years and they know we're going to be there in 110 years. And so they know that their qualification means something when they get uh, their, their vocational qualification from us and from reputable TAFE providers that they've known and, and trusted. So I think it, there has been damage in the past. I think it's being corrected. And I do think that the free TAFE initiative, and I know you want to talk about that later, but it does connect to this point, Andrew, because the free TAFE initiative has, I think, brought pride back to, to vocational education, and you've seen a return of students who are finding their way through that doorway now, and I think that has spilled over to the vocational area more broadly, which is a positive thing. Um, I Probably just in terms of brand and student choice and um, background, I think the missing piece in the discussion is um, vocational programs for uh, senior secondary students. And I, I put it deliberately that way rather than vetting schools because it seems to me that um, 
vetting, vetting schools is vocational provision in the average senior secondary school, the average high school, um, is an extremely difficult thing for a, with all the goodwill in the world for most schools to do at the breadth and depth and quality that's required and particularly in terms of um, um, uh, the teachers and trainers. Um, thinking particularly about apprenticeship in areas and areas where, frankly, young people need to be working with and mentored by uh, industry practitioners with deep experience. Um, so that so I'm completely sceptical because I've just been through too many marketing campaigns saying let's build the image of VET. We know that social marketing campaigns don't work because it's very hard to change entrenched social and cultural attitudes through marketing alone. really gets changed through experience. Um, I don't know why young people, um, if they are entitled to access um, the, school, the schooling resources package, the funding that flows to schools, why they shouldn't be entitled to carry that um, funding to complete a senior secondary education at a TAFE institute, possibly in partnership with the school. Um, I'm not arguing for the reintroduction of technical schools as they were. Um, and, of course, there are technical um, centres at Holmes Glen and I think at Melbourne Poly. Um, but they're not widespread. Uh, it's certainly a problem in regional areas. And I think if you could do one thing to provide a much better understanding and experience of the range of Fed offerings and the, the opportunities that come out of it, it would be to enable, to enable young people at an earlier age to participate, become immersed, to experience it and then to go through logically through a pathway directly into TAFE. Um, and in many cases, I would go with credit. Uh, but at the moment, uh, that is not the case often with the way Vedia School is structured and delivered and offered. And uh, the thing that particularly incenses and outrages me is when you see the continuing practice of schools, despite constant guidelines and statements from the department, from the minister, about charging, to see working class kids being charged fees to do vet units because, quote, um, we're not funded for those, we're funded to do the academic programs. So you'll find that kids are often forking out or their parents forking out and sometimes thousands of dollars to do vetting schools units um, when in fact the, the schooling resources package is meant to cover the total provision of all senior secondary subjects including vet ones. So I think the vetting schools and vet for senior secondary students area is the one that requires the most fundamental rethinking of, of, of all of the policy areas. I think that's the one that is the most important area to start. So is there a problem with you know, encouraging people to finish year 12, which makes the school the owner of these students when they should be allowed to leave and yeah, absolutely. do Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, the incentive with the way that funding works is the incentive is to retain kids. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's easy because, of course, a lot of young people will, will, will want to complete senior secondary with the cohort of students they started with. They'll want to go to um, uh, graduation balls and all of those things, uh, the school sports. I'm not saying it's easy, but for a whole range of, of students, um, particularly ones who aren't achieving at school, who aren't happy, who need to be in a different environment, often I think an adult learning environment. Um, to be frank, for a lot of young men, I suspect it would probably be actually working with um, older men in the trades and things like that, if I could sounded a bit gendered to say it, but I think it's actually the reality out there, particularly in, in, in some of the outer metropolitan suburbs and regional areas. Um, and even if it's not 
where they end up with a successful experience, at least they've got an experience of a different world and a different way of learning than the one that they've probably failed in over many over many years. So um, I'm not arguing that uh, we need to, as I say, introduce a sort of a, a dual system with bringing back the old tech schools. I think that's far too simple. But if you look at the richness of what's available for senior secondary students in, in TAFE and in the VET system, why they can't be exposed to it earlier and properly resourced and funded to do it is, is a mystery to me. Francis, do you want to...? Look, I agree with Peter. I think um, we should be providing young people in schools a lot more flexibility than we do. The courses are there for that to happen. Uh, they should be able to finish off with their friends and go to their, you know, um, you know uh, graduating balls, etc., but also be able to complete a VET qualification or uh, units out of a bachelor program, if that's what it is that they want to do. I think the, the more diverse the offering, the more it's going to reflect the needs of young people. I think we try and either put them into one pathway or another as though they're the only two pathways that are possible. And, in fact, what we know from young people is that they want a lot more diversity in the options that are offered to them. Um, and so I think it is around... Um, trying to hang on to territories um, that, that, that becomes the difficulty. And, and it's not as though vet in schools funding hasn't tried to be addressed in a significant number of times and we just haven't been able to crack that one. Could I go on to this free TAFE? Uh, has this had a big impact on demand? And if it has, does that signal that the fees were a major issue in the market? Francis. Look, what we're seeing at the moment is we've seen certainly an increase in enrolments through free TAFE. It's been a very positive thing. It's great to see the return of a lot of students back into TAFE and having very vibrant uh, campuses. You know, um, particularly in particular areas, we've you know we've seen increases in cyber security, community services, horticulture, um, a whole range of of, of areas. And I think it's been a very positive thing. I think fees is an issue um, where someone may not have may not think that they can also study as well as other financial pressures that they have. Free tape's been an opportunity to address that financially, and I think um, in certain parts of Victoria that's even more so than others. Uh, and I think that's been a very positive thing. I think it's been very positive. Um, we've seen the same um, response in terms of healthcare, community care, building construction, cybersecurity, accounting, bookkeeping. So people are wanting to find their way to, to uh, an educational experience that will give them a job. And uh, I think that it is signaling that um, the fees were a deterrent, particularly to some individuals who would be the first in family to ever consider tertiary education. And so this really does start to look much more accessible. What we have done, though, is we have also counselled uh, students, and sometimes they will say, well, in actual fact, the course I want to take isn't the one that's free, but I'm here now, and it's opened my eyes to what else is on the menu. And they might say, well, I want to do this one, but later I'd, I'd reserve my right to do one of the free courses later. What we have learned, uh, and we had very little preparation for this, so we had to move quite quickly, is that, as you would imagine, these courses all require some form of placement or practice experience. And so because we were able, through our university uh, resources, to dedicate 
um, infrastructure support to locating places for these individuals, we've been able to, to meet the expectations. But that's a, that's a key component. The other one that we've wondered about, and we're not clear yet, is whether attrition will be higher because students don't have the same investment because it's free. So what we've done is respond with more what we call hypercare to make sure that we are really giving students as, as much support as possible to keep them enrolled uh, because we would not want this to become a failure or a disappointment uh, in their educational um, history. So we're, we're working quite actively to make sure that this is successful. But as I said earlier, I think that the overall halo effect of pride and enthusiasm for vocational courses and respect for vocational courses that will lead to jobs that we desperately need filled, I think has been uh, the, the major takeaway that we want to reinforce. It was quite a good television ad campaign as well for it, I think, which probably helped. Yeah. So, Andrew, I was just going to say the relationship between free and retention was something that we also really worried about um, when, and as, as a sector. Uh, because the experience overseas, particularly in New Zealand, was that the attrition rate was at 30%. Um, and so what we've found is that the attrition rate is no different to any other TAFE student at our place. And I think that's been borne out at, by and large across the sector, albeit there has been additional effort gone in. Um, but it certainly hasn't, hasn't been borne out that there's been a greater attrition because it's free versus, uh, versus paid for. What about the courses where there are still fees? Has demand for them gone down? And to what extent... So we've got trade support loans, which can help some people doing apprenticeships, and we've got uh, vet student loans, which apply to some diploma courses. What about the other students? How, how do they So manage? are you asking a question of cannibalisation between one Partly area and another? Partly. Also just the practicalities of it. How do students manage when they're left with an upfront charge? Um, well, different institutes will have a range of arrangements that will support students to undertake a course of study. There are loan systems or partial payments, those kinds of things that are available. Um, as you say, the VET fee help is only available at certain levels of the vocational uh, programming. Um, but there'll be part loans and um, uh, direct debit and those kinds of things available to students. Andrew, I think um, just hark back, to, I suppose, to the work we've done at um, Mitchell Institute over the last several years and we'll, we'll be um, um, continuing on with as part of the ongoing uh, going, going work program, um, which is really the... So t two parts to it. One is the overall issue of participation. So if we do merely see substitution between fee and... Free, sorry, free and fee paying the overall effect on participation might be minimal because in, because in effect um, some students will be in free courses and there may just be a substitution effect and that was certainly an issue um, I know with New Zealand. Um, I think without sounding too much like an economic rationalist... Um, Go ahead. Well, there's one or two of those in the room already. Um, I think we always have to ask yourself the question, if you've got three, four, five, six hundred million dollars to spend and your objective is to actually um, maximise participation and outcome for retention, what's the best way to spend it? Um, I certainly think we need to look at the whole income contingent loan area. As, and so in New Zealand, they are available across the tertiary system, but the repayment thresholds are much lower. 
um, which some some so when the thresholds were being lowered in higher education, some people opposed it strongly on equity grounds. But it, uh, um, I mean, it it, it certainly um, got on my eye because the same people who would be concerned about um, the effect of dropping the thresholds for higher ed students had almost no interest at all in the fact that the vast majority of vet students were paying up front. And it seemed to me a reasonable trade-off to say that if you could drop the threshold so everybody could get an income contingent loan and then slow it, pay it back um, at relatively low rates, that to me is a more equitable system than one where only some students in higher education can get an income contingent loan. And it also basically means that the whole vet fee help project failed. It should have been focused on the subsidised courses particularly at quality providers like TAFE, so it could operate like HEX does with universities rather than creating a full fee market. Um, and um, so again, in the Mitchell submission to the Vet Fee Hawk Review, we argued that it should be refocused on, matched in with the state subsidy system as part of a rethinking of tertiary education overall, so that in fact, um, at the point of entry for all tertiary students, or certainly most full-time young people, it's free at the point of entry. I think that's the critical objective. I'm going to move to audience questions soon, so get ready. Uh, I just want to keep going with you, Peter, on your work on participation and attainment. So you put out a report a number of months ago which had some frightening projections. Can you, can you explain why this could look ugly by the mid-2020s? So all we did was um, we, uh, we mapped the continuation of the demand-driven system based on the trend that had operate, pertained over the previous two years. We mapped the effect of, um, of the funding freeze um, on enrolments and we mapped the effect of the trend in vet enrolments over the previous two years and extrapolated that over 10 years. Now, you could argue about whether that's the plausible scenarios or not. The issue, what, and what we then did was basically looked at the enrolments as a proportion of the population. Now, the reason why the participation rates fall, particularly in VET, is that we've got substantial population growth. So if you've got declining enrolments, if you've got static enrolments in higher ed and growing population, then higher ed participation will drop marginally over time. Um, if you've got declining, significant declines in VET enrolments and population growth, then you've got the perfect storm. And that's why the VET participation scenario falls off the cliff. Now, we were accused of being alarmist or these are unrealistic and so on, in which case I would say to the people who would make that criticism, particularly people in government, well, tell me the policy intervention that's going to stop the trend going down, particularly when we look at the government-funded um, student data again for last year because it continues to decline. So when we update that graph, it'll continue to go down. Whether, the, whether it goes as far as we projected or not, I'm not sure. And that's why it's really good that the whole issue is back on the COAG agenda. But, but basically, the, the, the nation needs to take stock of the fact that investment in tertiary education overall, but particularly in vocational education, is actually stagnant and declining, and as, as is participation in enrolment, as Linda said, just at a time when the population's increasing and the existing workforce is going to have to support more people who aren't in the workforce. So it's not a choice that the country can afford to take lightly. Yeah, so just in the school leaver demographic, there'll be 50,000 more 19-year-olds 10 years from now than there are today. So uh, that's, you know, for unis alone, that's probably worth about 20,000 extra commences every year and probably similar numbers again in vocational education with a system that's in decline. 
So, Linda, putting on your high red hat, uh, things haven't been nearly as bad for you wearing that hat as wearing your TAFE hat, but we're now in our second year of declining real funding of higher education. What impact is that going to have on your capacity to deliver student places over time? Mm. Um, it is a challenge. It is a constraint. Um, and it's a conversation that um, all of the vice chancellors, I think, are having uh, with our ministers in different parts of the country, as well as our federal minister, to really foreshadow the risks that are emerging for the Australian community. Um, I just locate this uh, in, in concerns about our future workforce. We talk about knowledge economy, we talk about industry 4.0 and the, the jobs of the future that are going to require increased qualifications, both in VET and higher ed. Um, and if we uh, settle on these kind of locked-in frameworks for higher education and a capped environment, uh, we are just simply not going to be able to take in students and we're not going to be producing uh, the graduates that are needed. We've got the baby boomers coming along, the Costello Howard baby boomers, and so there's going to be an increased demand, and yet the places will not be there. Um, universities have been criticized for uh, recruiting international students, but if you're capped at domestic students and you don't have any funding support for vocational students or an in income contingent loan scheme that would encourage them to participate more fully, then that becomes your only lever. And that balance is one that has to be very carefully managed. Our only university is probably about 80%, 83% domestic students. So we really are uh, a work engine for the uh, domestic workforce. Uh, but you can bring in some more international students and you need to, to, to spread the risk around that. But uh, if you get too far with the imbalance between domestic and international students, you're changing the nature of the Australian educational experience. So that one is not a, a, a good medium-term solution. So I think it means engaging actively with the wider community, with the business community, uh, to help think about uh, how we can influence policy settings to, to really demonstrate, as other countries are doing, that investment in education is an investment in our future. So would you prefer the demand-driven system to return? Is that your yeah. goal? Yep. Yeah, I think so. And contrary to Maxine's opening comments about you know uncapped going on forever, when you really looked at the data over the period of time when we had an uncapped market, it was not unfettered and out of control um, enrolments. Uh, Universities do care about their brand. They do care deeply about quality. And we wanted to be able to attract students into a range of programs. Uh, what we want is, and I, this is where I think building on the AQF review is going to be very helpful, to look then at, at the COAG conversation and ways in which we could build a more um, seamless and connected tertiary system, which would give us the freedom and flexibility to help attract students to the right course for them at the right time. But if the only door that was open was uncapped and nothing in VET, then that was where the students went. Right? So I do think we really need to look at that uncapped market again. I know it may seem like um, a difficult one to imagine, but I do think that we're going to have to have a much more assertive approach to growing places for our domestic students. I did check and found that most of these young people are in liberal health seats, so maybe that will change the, the calculation. Okay, it's time for audience questions. I do have some that were submitted prior, but uh, is there anyone in the audience who's got a question? It can be to the whole panel or, or to someone in particular. 
There's one over here. So we've got microphones here. Thank you. My name's Lynn Oak. I'm, I find it extraordinary that the federal government doesn't take some role in determining what tertiary vocational courses are offered. Uh, I work in the health field and there are various health professions that are desperately needed and yet there aren't training places for enough students and yet there are other health professions that are, the associations are trying to caution and say you don't need any more of this particular health profession being churned out because there aren't places for the students. But the universities are opting for, I think, the cheaper course to run, the ones that are more costly because of equipment related to the aspect of the work are the ones that aren't offered. Do you think that, the uni that, the, that there should be some coordination and direction provided in this area? Well, um, so uh, again, in the um, in the Bradley Re review recommendations, um, it it um, there was a a recommendation, or certainly a point that was made that in cases of um, clear what we call market failure of, of egregious oversupply, or where there were serious shortages, um, that it was a legitimate role for government in the public interest to. Um, to step in and help shape provision. Now, having said that, I think Andrew and I both would share a similar scepticism about the ability often for government to get this right. And I'm having run a central planning and purchasing system in a state debt system, I'm not a fan of those models because I often end up, um, you end up with serious lag effects. Um, the intelligence you use uh, is often state or national in character, so it doesn't reflect regional or local needs and as and you can get the sort of the awful effect of winner picking where subsidy rates get increased or decreased to try and influence what institutions do but in fact it's actually student demand that drives provision rather than um, what courses universities usually put on so if there's an area of under of serious undersupply usually you've got to look at the more fundamental reasons why that's a factor, and it's often due to wages and conditions, labour market factors, um, the way the occupation structured, a whole range of complex things, rather than simply the course that the institution puts on. Yeah, so people in the room who've heard me before will say, you know, know that I'm very concerned about the way the government promoted science courses, for example, over the last decade, which was a successful campaign that enrolments boomed, but now we've got very, very poor outcomes, people, particularly people in the biological sciences where there just aren't nearly enough jobs relevant to their skills. On the other hand, the demand-driven system did see the biggest absolute increases in the health fields, which were the main areas of skill shortage prior to the demand-driven system. And even though there are bottlenecks in the health training system because of the clinical training element, which limits the capacity to increase student numbers... You know, I would class that as you know, one of the biggest successes of the demand-driven system, that it did accelerate that uh, at a faster rate than would have been likely under any other system. Could I add a comment? Because I think the other um, risk that we carry with a capped environment right now is that the um, 
cluster funding is so uneven across the different courses that we may find ourselves in a few years having many fewer STEM graduates uh, because there is uh, more, it's more efficient to move all the places into areas like accounting and law and business. And that won't be spotted until a few years out. And then the minister will wonder why we don't have the STEM graduates, notwithstanding the, the employment issues. We do need those graduates and we do need those for the, for the careers of the future. So the, the cluster funding is also a barrier in a capped environment when you, you have to just move the money around and get the most from it. So to explain, the cluster funding is the amount per student that the unis get. Most inaccessible seat. Uh, Leslie Ann Hawthorne, University of Melbourne. I've got two quick questions. One is I read some very alarming attrition rates at the period that was the high point of the uncapped enrolments at universities a couple of years back. And I just wondered if there could be some comment regarding that. The other thing is we're talking so far as if international students are totally decoupled from the domestic workforce. That's absolutely not the case. So if I look at a field like nursing, just taking health as an example, given the previous question, um, if you looked about six years back, a third of the nurses who gained permanent migration status had Australian qualifications. By last year, it was 80%. So there is an absolute feedback loop for many fields of qualification into the domestic workforce. Thank you. I'll start with the attrition. So it's come back down again now to below what it was when the demand-driven system started. I think there was some learning going on, and part of it was at your institution to let you talk about that, but some universities moved into completely new fields that they had not done before or new modes of delivery, and it took some time in some cases to learn how to do it properly, that most of the deterioration or the increase in attrition was actually down to, to three universities rather than the whole sector, and all of them worked out you know, how to improve it after they'd sort of ironed out something. And Swinburne Online was one of those ones, so perhaps you should talk yeah, about thank that. thank you. <laughs> yeah, if you look at our uh, on-campus students, it was uh, as good or better than the national average in terms of attrition. But because we opened it up very quickly and grew our numbers in our online delivery, online delivery, delivery worldwide has higher attrition. We were meeting the needs of students that were generally older that were coming back for a further qualification. Uh, the majority of them were part-time. Uh, we had a higher proportion of people who were indigenous, a higher proportion with low socioeconomic, regional and rural. So we were at more like 60, 65% completions. Um, so that that uh, can be a criticism. On the other hand, you've got people who would otherwise never touch a campus now getting some access to education. But what we found was that as we learned about how to engage people more actively in an online environment, keep them motivated, keep them participating, uh, and trialing different approaches in real time, which we could do in an online environment, we actually started to see some real benefits of, of how to decrease attrition, not only in the online mode, but on the on in campus as well. So um, I think it was, frankly, a, a bit of alarmist reaction to a, to a short-term change, uh, but it was about building opportunities for students, and we've been really pleased with how that's improved. 
Um, well, I, as somebody from VU, of course, I couldn't um, let the opportunity also uh, go and remarked about the success of the um, the block model of uh, of, of um, teaching units the way intensively in the way they've been uh, the way that's been done at VU, and I think what that suggests is that there is scope and capacity for a lot more innovation in in delivery and including I think um, not only between vet and higher education in terms of dual qualifications and those sort of things but I think if we re we conceived the senior secondary years and the early years of tertiary as a more as a coherent block of learning for young people to move through um, a lot of the issues around attrition that arise because young people find themselves in quite unfamiliar learning in environments or unsupported or um, you know, not having friendship groups, all the reasons why people... Well, I mean, young people often drop out for reasons unrelated to the quality of teaching and learning. Um, and I think if they get a better sense at a younger age about what the whole tertiary experience is going to be and they get to experience tertiary at a younger age, I mean, let's face it, um, young people are... Um, you know, we, we, we treat... The last bit of the architecture of, if you like, the post-compulsory system or the post-15 system that's really unreconstructed is the concept that at the end of 12 years of schooling you have this sharp break with a big capstone assessment to sift and sort people into pathways rather than actually connecting with the real lives of young people and, and thinking about the age of, say, of 16 to 19, 16 to 20 as an opportunity for a discrete and an intensive period of, of, of learning and workplace engagement and so on. And I think from that, we would probably deal a lot with attrition rates as well. I think, you know, we see schools like um, Templestowe High School now ask young people to plan their, their futures in year eight and year nine and do their five-year plan and start to explore a whole range of settings um, and engaging in uh, different ways of learning that place them in the community, place them in universities, in TAFEs, um, and expose them a lot more to a range of settings. I think traditionally schools have been very good at keeping young people inside the gates and so you, you, you know when they first join a university campus or they come onto a TAFE campus, you can see who they are really immediately. They, they just are a bit of a loss of how to function in a place that is not like a school, which can be quite institutionalised. And so schools are working, I think, um, in recent years to kind of break that up again a, a bit and, um, and expose uh, their students to a range of settings. So you'll often see students visit uh, TAFE campuses and universities. There are programs that are offered by TAFE and universities to school students, both uh, with us going into the schools but also uh, with young people visiting campuses. We haven't answered the question on international students. Uh, so this is a huge, well, it's not just international students, it's migration more broadly. So I think the numbers we have in our report, about 25% of graduates aged 25 to 34 have either an overseas qualification or are non-citizen holders of an Australian qualification. So I think we want to track some of these numbers in sort of my, my last few weeks at Grattan, but clearly migration has played as big a role as demand-driven funding. Uh, in changing the nature of the graduate labour market and therefore in thinking about the, the way the, the tertiary system needs to work, we need to think about what are the flows coming 
you know, from outside Australia, as well as the flows coming through the school system and, and into our tertiary institutions. Um, the uh, Dan Henrahan, the University of Melbourne. Um, the vast majority of people that are designing post-secondary tertiary, tertiary education policy, like p politicians, their staffers, people at the Department of Education, as well as people influencing the debate about the future of work with their guesses of what will happen, have primarily done university degrees and I would guess not that many of them have done a vet degree so don't understand it that much and... Um, probably value the university experience they had quite highly. How do you shift or how do you bring more people that have done a VET degree um, and experience that into the policymaking discussions and process? Uh, it's absolutely spot on question, absolutely spot on. And certainly in my experience in Victoria and in Queensland, um, I saw the loss and erosion of people out of the industrial Training system, um, the um, I suppose the, the you know the continuing rise of the um, um, of the you know the educated professional middle class, the professionalisation of the public service, and so on. I might say it's not only in the public service; it's also in, in teaching as well. I remember going to a one of the um, technical education centres attached to a high school um, where there was a, an absolutely fantastic um, Swiss hospitality teacher with a certificate for, in his 50s, totally committed to the program. He was running for hospitality students in the, um, um, in the uh, um, outer east of Melbourne, in an you know, underprivileged area, being told that basically unless he qualified for his degree the following year, he would be out because he wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to be a registered teacher. Um, um, and, I, I, and I think that's part of... So actually, rather than looking at what he brought to the learning and the educational environment, the judgment was that he wasn't suitable simply because he didn't have a professional qualification. Well, for somebody at the age of 54 or 55, there was no in the world he was going to go and do a degree part-time. So I just think we need to, to rethink the whole concept of the skills and knowledge and capabilities that are required to, as you say, to, to design and, and staff and run these um, the the education systems, the education bureaucracies, and 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 bring back into the system, particularly in vocational education, a lot of the traditional strengths of the people who used to be there. But I, you know, I certainly saw pretty much from the mid nineteen eighties were phased out by the increasing professionalisation um, um, uh, through traditional degree requirements um, of of those people. I mean. They either retired or weren't replaced, or in some cases they were just made redundant because they were seen to no longer cut the mustard. You know, the, the question around how you get policymakers to be sensitised and understand much more what happens in TAFE institutes, you know, it, this may sound flippant, but I think, you know, having, having those people visit and understand what is going on and be exposed to, you see the responsiveness of... And you may not think so, Linda, but you see the responsiveness of policymakers and politicians to chancellors and vice chancellors. It is in their experience, and they understand what they get in a university. When we ask them to be responsive to vet, they're quite sceptical. We're almost interested parties you can't trust, right? Whereas you trust industry and you don't trust the TAFE Institute, 
as the educational provider to be working in the interests of the community and industry for which it serves. You know, so there is there is an issue there in um, in how the sector is seen as a legitimate part of the tertiary sector, how we professionalise the staff that are in that and that they are rewarded and um, recognised for the skills they do bring, and that is seen as a important part of the sector. I don't think we have that. Uh, VET isn't planned, you know, in a way that you might like to see it planned in the state, in the same way that you might plan secondary schools, you know. Um, so I think those things need to be need to be addressed before we can get uh, any further in the policy space. We've got time for one more question. Sorry. I think another example of the um, of the cultural problem that you, that the last question related to was that um, central agencies and treasuries in particular with tertiary educated um, I, and I think uh, I, I'm I'm actually in favour of um, you know well managed choice and competition in tertiary education so I'm not anti market but to see that turned into a petri dish for market experimentation around the most sort of far-fetched notions of market design and so on without any regard or thinking through the consequences and the full protection of the public university sector in my no, in, in my in my um, sense is, was no accident it was basically well we can afford to play around with this and do a bit of market experimentation because we don't really care what happens but we won't do that to the um, you know, the universities that we graduated from because, you know, we might be frowned on. I mean, that sounds like an extreme statement, but I think it, I think it was no accident that most of the people that I worked with in central agencies in particular over that time had no concept of what they were doing or the effect on uh, systems and institutions and students of market design rules, and they were just basically applying the economic textbooks because they never had the practical experience or the on-the-ground understanding of what would happen as a consequence of what they of what they did. So, got a short question, then short answers. <laughs> uh, mine will be short as well. Um, Sam Rappasada, Wesley College, Melbourne. I'm in the middle of um, um, counselling over 200 Year 12 students at the moment. I'm one of uh, two careers counsellors there. Parental expectations, that's my major problem. Is there any way that we can influence parents into... Um, understanding that the vet sector, the, the vet sector is actually a viable option for um, students. Pick that up first. Yeah, if I could. Um, look, I think uh, trying to influence parents, I think, is about if you think about what motivates parents to make choices, it's around future security, income, um, a better life for their children you know, uh, than, than they had. And so they can see what a university has bought in the past and what it potentially could bring for their child. So it's a no-brainer, right, to do that. So I think there's a responsibility for us to be able to, um, to demonstrate the possibilities and to go out there and promote some of the outcomes and the... Um, uh, and, and the way in which successful pathways can be generated through the VET system. I don't think it's as, it's as promoted. We don't act as a, a sector. It's almost, um, although there's diversity in universities to an extent, they are seen more cohesively as what they offer 
you know, whereas a TAFE Institute will offer courses for three months, six months, a year, two years, people will come for short courses. The greater diversity in the pathways are potentially much more complex and the sense of security in, in terms of your income and what you get from that um, is a little bit less predictable for your general person, in, you know, trying to make those decisions for their young for their young people. So I think we need to be able to promote um, and be able to demonstrate, more importantly, the outcomes and careers that people have achieved through the TAFE sector. I think that's a good note on which to conclude the panel discussion. Pass across to John Daly, who's the CEO of Grant Institute. If I can just close this evening by doing two things. Firstly, to thank those who've made tonight possible. Uh, obviously, the State Library, our continuing partner in this um, policy pitch series, uh, and to Linda Christensen, Peter Noonan and Francis Coppolillo, thank you very, very much for your contribution tonight. Uh, now, as was mentioned a little earlier, this is indeed Andrew's last public event for Grattan, uh, and it's also discussing his last report. And so I thought we should mark the occasion just a little, um, because uh, the qualities that Andrew has brought um, and displayed tonight, of course, are the qualities that he's brought to Grattan over so many years. Um, he's very calm, he's measured, he's dispassionate, he's unfailingly polite. Uh, and uh, we've seen all of that, despite, frankly, um, uh, quite a lot of provocation every so often. Um, he, uh, the, the campus morning mail recently described him as the ultra-learned uh, Andrew Norton, which I thought coming from a university publication was quite a compliment. Uh, and, but, of course, it's true. He's deeply analytic. He has an extremely deep knowledge of the sector based on working on higher education and its policy for essentially all of his working life, uh, and that really shows, uh, I think, in the work that he's put out. Um, because he has brought this, uh, these qualities to Grattan, as Tim Dodds uh, in the Higher Education Supplement wrote recently, uh, for the past eight years, anybody interested in Australian higher education policy has come to be highly reliant on the work of Andrew Norton. Uh, he's admired for his independence, his insightfulness, his willingness to be provocative and the fact that his policy work is deeply rooted in evidence. And I think all of that is true. Uh, enabled by those qualities, I think Andrew um, has really left uh, at Grattan and left for the sector an enormous and very important body of work. Um, there is, of course, the five editions of Mapping Higher Education, uh, which one university chancellor told me he basically sent to all new council members and told them, ask them politely, please don't turn up to your first council meeting until you have read it, cover to cover. I'm not sure whether he in fact administered a test, but I suspect so. Uh, there's the work that Andrew has done on university teaching, uh, on online teaching, on the quality of teaching, on student attrition, uh, and looking at how universities could do better. Um, there is the work he has done on university fees, on international student fees, how that intersects with research funding. For those of you kind of deeply steeped in political theory who uh, would have got the joke about um, Andrew's report, the cash nexus uh, between international students. Anyone got the joke? <laughs> uh, which I think was a source of great disappointment to Andrew, but at least I got the joke. <laughs> Um, uh, I did find it kind of quite wonderful that the uh, Carlton's lone classical liberal was the one right at Grattan Institute 
writing a report about the cash nexus, otherwise known as a Marxist term. Um, but uh, it's been fantastic work. And then, of course, there was the work that uh, Andrew has done on the demand-driven system, arguing why it was a good idea. I think he's one of the very first people to really understand how the demand-driven system interacted um, with the uh, help system uh, and how the sustainability of the help system was key to the sustainability of the demand-driven system. Uh, and I think that that uh, is something that we've kind of all figured out now, um, but Andrew certainly got there a long time before the rest of us, and if we'd all learnt, uh, listened a little more carefully, then maybe history would be different. Um, so it's an incredibly important set of qualities that Andrew's brought to Grattan, an extraordinary body of work that he has produced. Uh, obviously, that is not lost. Uh, the whole point is it is there to kind of help keep guiding the sector for a long time. And I'm very hopeful that um, Andrew is not going to be lost to the higher education sector. Obviously, he worked in it well before he came to Grattan, and I'm hoping he will continue to be working in it for a very long time. But I would like to ask you tonight to show your appreciation for the extraordinary contribution that Andrew has made to higher education in Australia at Grattan. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.